0: Hello, my name is Neeru Pucha. I'm a junior faculty member in pulmonary and critical care at Johns Hopkins University. I'm a member of the Environmental, Occupational, and Population Health Assembly Web Committee. And today, it was my privilege to, interv- to interview one of the pioneers in the field of occupational medicine, Dr. Paul Blanc. Dr. Blanc is a professor of medicine and holds the Endowed Chair of Occupational and Environmental Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Among his many early training experiences, Dr. Blanc completed a joint occupational and internal medicine residency at Cook County Hospital in Chicago, and later was a Robert Wood Johnson Scholar at UCSF and a Fulbright Scholar at Ben Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. His research work over the past two decades has focused on the epidemiology of occupational asthma and work-related COPD. More recently, through work with the Veterans Affairs Healthcare System, he has become involved in a large study that seeks to understand the lung-related outcomes associated with service in Iraq and Afghanistan. Dr. Blanc has specific expertise in medical toxicology and serves on the Scientific Review Panel for Toxic Air Contaminants, the California Air Resources Board, demonstrating a commitment to translating research findings into changes in policy that influence public health. He has authored the well-received book, How Everyday Products Make People Sick and regularly posts a blog hosted by Psychology Today, efforts geared to educating the general public on issues of the adverse effects of toxic substances. His new book, Fake Silk, on occupational disease in the rayon and cellophane industry, will be coming out with Yale University Press this fall. I had the distinct pleasure to talk with Dr. Blanc about his extraordinary work in this field as well as his research directions moving forward. We also had the opportunity to talk about the development of his career, his key influences and thoughts, and his advice for those currently in the process of developing their careers. Okay, Dr. Blanc, thank you so much for joining us for this um, podcast. Um, we're excited to um, get some insights from you about the development of your career and your research. Um, the first questions I have are related to, um, to the development of your career. Um, And I wanted to ask what your inspiration was to pursue a career in environmental and occupational health.
1: My uh, career started in this field actually as an undergraduate. I studied at a small liberal arts school in Vermont called Goddard College, and it's an experimental, um, experiential learning-oriented college that's uh, still um, a going concern, And as part of my work there, I um, worked on a senior project which evolved into a documentary agitprop theater piece on occupationally caused cancer, uh, specifically angiosarcoma of the liver. And that set me off on uh, the pathway that I took, which was followed before medical school by... um, public health training in industrial hygiene at the Harvard School of Public Health.
0: Um, what um, part of that project and what were the findings of the project that, um, that led you to down the path to further seek um, more training in public health and then as a physician?
1: Well, doing that project, I think, introduced me to some of the basic concepts of Occupational and environmental health, and in particular, um, the uh, position of workers uh, in in that in that world, where um, the diseases uh, that that employees get and the costs of those diseases are never actually borne by the um, manufacturers that produce them. So those were, were major lessons that I've uh, taken with me along with, I think, a key point that uh, very often it is a combination of changing technologies that introduce new diseases in the workforce along with well-established causes of disease uh, that don't seem to go away, for example, uh, silica exposure.
0: Dr. who were your mentors along the way, whether it was early um, doing this project as an undergraduate or further along in your training?
1: The key mentor when I first started off uh, was uh, luckily uh, Dr. John Freunds, who was a chemistry teacher of mine at Goddard, but also was uh, well-known as one of the Chicago 7 then went on to be um, deputy director of uh, NIOSH uh, at the federal level and later uh, professor of environmental sciences and environmental health at the UCLA School of Public Health. And we've uh, worked together um, as colleagues um, really ever since then. And then at the School of Public Health, obviously there were other uh, important uh, colleagues, including uh, Dr. John Peters, who was a mentor, uh, and after whom the um, EOH Assembly um, John Peters Award is named. And
0: did you find, in addition to mentors, um, in the setting of work or at the school of public health or as an undergraduate and also further along in your training did you find any mentors outside of academic um, the academic setting or in the medic- outside of the medical field?
1: Well certainly there were um, inspirational figures and, um, and mentors. one of them, in particular for me, was uh, Tom Hayden, who I I was introduced to through John Forens and worked with him um, on the campaign for economic democracy, developing materials for them in uh, terms of uh, the history of occupational disease and um, the current public policy related to um, occupational illness and environmental illness, in particular at that time um, environmental and occupational causes of cancer, which was an early focus of mine, but uh, then evolved over time. My, my residency, I should add, was in a joint occupational internal medicine program at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. So uh, I would certainly be remiss if I didn't mention a whole, a whole group of uh, mentors there and as well as um, as my co-residents who have gone on to be quite involved in occupational disease, uh, including um, Dr. Bruce Bernard at the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, uh, and and others, and also one of my co-residents from the internal medicine side. Um, Dr. Bob Cohen, who's become one of the U.S. leaders in pneumoconiosis.
0: Other than the the mentors that you've mentioned, um, what were the other big influences for the direction that your career has taken over the past decades?
1: I think uh, big influences are perhaps more at the societal level and the continuing need to um, give attention to occupational health. Um, I was graduating medical school just as Ronald Reagan was coming into power and one of my friends who had been interested in occupational health but veered towards pediatrics, at the time said, well, it's okay because now we're going to have a return of child labor. And although that wasn't exactly the case, uh, it's not so very far from the truth. And I, th- I think that as we've seen uh, uh, income inequality rise in the United States, um, we've also seen um, an erosion of uh, organized labor and um many other factors which have influenced me to remain um, dedicated to uh, to the cause. So
0: with regards um, to the Direction your career has taken, and the path you've taken, is there anything that you would do differently, knowing um, what you know now?
1: I'm not sure. Um, uh, You know, sometimes people say, "Gee, wouldn't it be great to be uh, 21 again or 30?" and uh, Often my response is not for a million bucks because uh, I don't want to go through all that again. So I don't know. I, I don't, No, I don't think so, really. Um, I would say in terms of training, I was really lucky. Um, and I, one thing I certainly wouldn't do differently is, for me, it was really advantageous to go to public health school before medical school. It put it in a context that was, for me, more useful than if I'd done it the other way around, I realized that for most physicians, um, they, they end up doing public health school afterwards. But it turned out for me this was a good way to do it. And I was very lucky to have a combined internal medicine, occupational medicine residency opportunity. Those don't exist anymore, unfortunately. Um, and um, I never trained formally in pulmonary uh, Disease. I'm not uh, boarded in pulmonary medicine, and I do not uh, regret that. In the big scheme of things, I've, I've uh, not been limited by that in what I what I want to do.
0: Most of us starting our careers probably long for some of that passion that you have obviously put into. Uh, the work that you do um, from the beginning, and you've told a, an important story about with regards to occupational health and um, workplace uh, safety, and I wonder if you can speak a little bit about finding, finding a mission for your career and finding this passion and, and developing that as you, as you went along.
1: Uh, perhaps I might put it in reverse order. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to assume that people are passionate about different things. And what I would say is pursue the things you're passionate about. Do not worry about uh, what kind of job that's going to translate into or uh, how that's going to be funded if you go backwards uh, it's, it's not going to work out because you'll be behind the curve anyway if you chase after funding and tailor what you do to that or what you think is, uh, is currently in, in vogue. Uh, do, do, do what you care about and everything else will flow out of that. I, I know that that may sound heretical, uh, at the present, and perhaps that is a generational shift a bit in terms of um, more recent um, uh, people entering, entering the field, All, although there's always been a trend of, uh, of that, and I think the thing that we have to fight is the impulse towards careerism uh, you're talking about uh, people's lives, and and if you don't have uh, fire in your belly for what you're doing, the the whole enterprise is uh, pretty painful. So,
0: going along with that same. Um thought process, what do you believe, other than having a strong conviction and passion for what you're working on, but what do you believe are the important ingredients for a successful career in academic research?
1: I mean, it's it's obvious that you can't do it on your own. And so uh, working with people who Uh, are supportive and creative and uh, not exploitative uh, is hugely important. And here at UCSF, I've been also very lucky in that regard that when I first arrived, there were some very senior people who were incredibly kind and generous to me and supportive in my early work. Uh, One in particular is uh, Dr. Homer Boucher, who recently retired, but still is still active, and certainly was very active in the ATS, and also um, Dr. Jay Nadell, who uh, founded our our training program here in pulmonary medicine, and both of them uh, have long interests in um, ambient air pollution health effects. So we did have overlap, and Homer, for example, helped me do some early experiments when I. Came that related to uh, welding fume inhalation. So I had a chance to do some human exposure studies uh, that was uh, uh, n- not a direction I continued in the long term, but was uh, very important to me to gain grounding in that, in the language of that kind of experimentalism.
0: Lately, there's been a lot of discussion of this changing climate of academics, and um, I wonder if you think this is entirely related to changes in the funding, uh, which you sort of alluded to earlier, or are there truly changes occurring over time that you've noticed that contribute to this feeling of change?
1: Well, I, I think that to things you allude to go hand in glove i think there are truly things driven by uh the finances Uh, like they said in uh, all the president's men follow the money but those changes then lead to real changes uh in the uh, academic structure the academic system of rewards um but people have to also take a long view of this. That this does come in cycles, and if you can survive the current cycle, which is terribly difficult for people um, across a range of investigative pursuits, then uh, then probably uh, five or ten years from now things will swing back a bit Uh at least that's my my hope. Um, one and people who who uh, just think this is the end of the world should uh, perhaps be a little a little less egocentric and think about what academics were going through in the United States in 1952 and 1953 when the issue was not money; the issue was being kicked out of the university because you weren't uh, uh, towing the. Reactionary political line of the times. So, uh, for those of us whose whose parents lived through the blacklist, uh, it's important to remember that it's the whole world is not NIH funding. Uh, there's some some bigger things happening in the world as well. So
0: then, what thoughts or advice? Um, other Other than what we already spoke of, do you have for people just getting started in their careers with with regards to um, improving chances of success?
1: Well, I think people who have you know an active clinical um, arena are are in in better shape because they can diversify their activities and uh, their their sources of, of support if they're in a uh, university-based uh, medical center. I think uh, taking a long view is always uh, helpful. I think um, if you're in a training program or even in a modestly protected junior faculty position, it's hugely important to use that time to put as many um, skills in your pack as you can, as many arrows in your quiver. If there are things that you were um, thinking maybe you should uh, bone up on uh, skills that you should acquire, do it. That's the time to do it because it'll serve you well. Again, I'm presuming it's in in some direction that you really... Care about because otherwise it's uh, it's just drudgery and you don't you don't want that so uh, this sounds like you know some kind of generic homily and maybe it is but uh, again just remember what it's all about uh, you know what does Garrison Keillor say on his poetry moment you know think right on the Pray, home companion, you know, think good thoughts, and uh, do well, and and act kindly to others.
0: I wanted to shift focus a little bit now to speak a little bit more directly about your work. Um, and to put it mildly, you've done a lot of important work surrounding work-related lung disease and asthma. Um, I wanted to ask you first what what you felt have been the biggest challenges in studying, studying work-related asthma.
1: Well, I'm going to answer that question a little bit uh, more broadly to include uh, occupationally-related COPD as well as asthma in your your words are very kind about uh, doing important work. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that for others to say, but uh, obviously in occupational medicine, uh, the biggest limitation is that it's almost impossible to get into the workplace and have ac- access to uh, cohorts of exposed workers. Um, so my my strategy has been more epidemiological and, and population-based, including um, using survey research techniques, which was a key part of my uh, post-residency training, I should say, uh, because I had the, the chance to do two years as a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar, and most of that time uh, was learning and then applying survey research techniques. And one of the areas in which I see in um Occupational Environmental Respiratory Medicine, where there is a uh, a range of sophistication uh, is in survey research methodology. People are oftentimes uh, applying questionnaires, but don't don't have sufficient uh, background in it. So um, that's been a key thing uh, that has let me um, approach some of the issues that I have, particularly with a focus on uh, the population attributable fraction for uh, asthma and for COPD in terms of occupational exposure. Um, I think a barrier, um, but it was a challenge, was the resistance in um, the pulmonary community and, and more broadly to accept the proportion of asthma and especially the proportion of COPD that might be due to occupational exposures. And so that, that resistance um, uh, was a problem at times, including um, strategically in terms of publishing findings. Um, and overcoming a certain model of respiratory medicine in which if you weren't doing uh, large um, um, spirometry-based investigations, it, it wasn't um, occupational health research, which is, uh, I think, too, too narrow uh, a view of what's, what can be done and what may be needed.
0: In the past few decades, have you seen changes in the epidemiology of this disease or the diseases that you're studying due to changes in labor practices and and the relative deindustrialization of the U.S.?
1: Well, one question is deindustrialization for whom. Uh, There's obviously a lot of dirty work that still happens in the United States. Much of it is done by uh, vulnerable populations, including undocumented workers. Um, so um, I'm not convinced that suddenly over the last 20 years the workplace has become so much cleaner, although we have certainly lost uh, some heavy industry sectors. Um, but other sectors such as construction, including Uh, secondary concrete work is perhaps bigger now than it's ever been uh, because the nature of construction has changed. And uh, agriculture is certainly uh, as big as it's ever been. And certainly we see uh, new diseases emerging, sometimes from new exposures or sometimes from old exposures. So the technology of uh, flock work and the the work that... uh, has been shown, uh, not just with nylon flock, but with other flocks and lung disease. The emergence of uh, occupationally related bronchiolitis obliterans, uh, these are all examples of, of newly emerging diseases. I, I guess I would say in terms of the changing level of exposure, if you think about COPD, where the dominant uh, attributable Uh, factor is cigarette smoke. So cigarette smoke traditionally has been associated with 80% or so of COP, not 100%, which was one of the things that I had to fight against in terms of uh, concepts. Uh, But as the prevalence of smoking falls, the relative contribution of occupational factors is going to grow, even if... Those occupational exposures may be less intense for some sectors, although, as I would argue, not necessarily for others, such as agriculture.
0: So, um, in 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 the current past couple of years, what kind of Occupational exposures—have you specifically been studying, and what has been? uh, What are the highlights of what you think have been the important exposures in in the past several years um, that stand out to you? Well, I want to
1: perhaps start by saying that some of my colleagues are doing more important work in terms of emerging diseases. So, if you think about uh, the work of uh, Cecile Rose in uh, bronchiolitis obliterans or, or Kate Kreiss or um, Kristen Cummings in emerging diseases, uh, um, the latter two both based at NIOSH. Uh, if you think about uh, Bob Cohen, who I just mentioned uh, a while ago, in terms of the reemergence of uh, accelerated pneumoconiosis in the United States coal mining industry um, and the work of others. In terms of uh, work that I myself have been involved in, uh, most notably uh, a series of collaborations with colleagues in Israel related to the outbreak there of um, advanced silicosis related to uh, artificial stone uh, uh, materials that are used mostly in kitchens and bathrooms. Uh, one of the big manufacturers is in, is in Israel. It's called Caesarstone, but there are other uh, major manufacturers, including uh, in the United States, DuPont. And these materials um, are not a hazard in the factories particularly. It's out in the field where they're cut, and they're 99% or 90% uh pure crystalline silica. and the, um, the group that I work with in Israel is the lung transplant group there uh, because these people have been coming to lung transplantation. And I've also collaborated with a, um, a, uh, a very bright young investigator here at UCSF, John Singer, who is one of our uh, transplant physicians and is an epidemiologic researcher. And he and I have worked uh, together on... Um, also on what is the United States experience with uh, transplantation for uh, occupational lung disease. And together, both of us worked with a a fellow here who's uh, uh, gone on to good work um, named Ryan Kern looking at um, hypersensitive pneumonitis that uh, undergoes transplant and what proportion of that may be uh, due to environmental indoor causes versus classic occupational causes um, versus unknown causes. And what proportion of that is not actually recognized until after lung transplant because it's really hard sometimes to differentiate it from uh, um, idiopathic uh, fibrosis.
0: So it sounds like there could be potentially a lot of challenges with regards to the heterogeneity of the exposures and the manifestations as far as disease, but I wonder what the biggest or the most notable challenges that you have found in translating your findings about occupational related lung disease into policy that would potentially protect individuals.
1: Well, that's it, it. It's a very hard struggle. Uh, OSHA, uh, under the leadership of uh, David Michaels, who's a really incredible figure uh, in an occupational disease, um, has recently promulgated a new standard on silica. This took uh, more than a decade, uh, and. Just, and that's for a single agent, uh, a, a substance whose health effects are uh, in- inarguable and been recognized for, uh, you know, 500 years, uh, putting it mildly. So, uh, in terms of translating into um, promulgated standards, it's, it's a um, quite a difficult challenge. But... I think the role that we can play as um, scientists with a with an eye towards public health is in um, providing the information that can be used by others uh, in in policy determination. I myself do sit on a scientific review panel for the California um, Air Resources Board, where we um, review. Um, uh, material that comes to us in terms of risk assessment and that then eventually translates into policies from the California Air Resources Board. My friend and colleague, uh, John Balms, who's a leader uh, in environmental and occupational lung disease, also sits at a higher level on the Air Resources Board and is very engaged in public policy. Uh, one of our other academic uh, colleagues here, uh, Patty Quinlan, who's an industrial hygienist by training, uh, in addition to her work at the university, sits on the Standards Board of uh, California OSHA. So uh, I'm a big uh, proponent in uh, the people in our field being engaged in directly in areas that um, either actively inform policy or make policy um uh, Perhaps a role model for uh, uh, f- for us in that, are a number of people, uh, uh, even in, in the environmental occupational assembly, who have have been extremely uh, active, far more active than I in in, uh, in uh, that regard. John Sammet is probably the poster child for that, uh, just in in I don't know how he does what he does in a 24-hour day, frankly.
0: So then what do you see as the most important questions that would need to be tackled next in the field of occupational and and environmental health? And I guess by next I mean just moving forward Um, and possibly if you could speak to your experience in in sitting on these um, particularly in the state of California and the boards looking at um, at work-related uh, uh, lung disease and work-related diseases, do you think that there's more, what other questions have you found that need to be tackled to, to better influence policy?
1: Well, um Clearly, the issue of uh, work-exacerbated asthma is one that uh, still needs uh, more work, and it's quite an important issue. Paul Hennenberger from the Assembly has led a task force on that, and I think that laid out that there's a longer-term research agenda and policy agenda would flow out of that. I think another area that has not been well-integrated is the issue of military service as an occupational exposure. And there's been a bit of a disconnect uh, historically between persons who do work with uh, military and veteran populations and the mainstream of um, occupational lung disease. And I think that bridge needs to be gapped. Uh, One person, I think, who's actively doing that is Eric Garshik, who has a strong background in uh, at the epidemiology of lung b- disease, did a lot of work on uh, diesel exhaust and occupational lung cancer, but is um, based uh, at uh, the VA uh, and uh, is now uh, co-chair of a, a cooperative study that will be looking at uh, lung outcomes from um, service uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and and I'm lucky enough to be a co-chair along with him on that because I've recently begun work uh, at the VA here in San Francisco. I think that issues of emerging occupational lung disease are still uh, bubbling to the surface all the time, uh, emerging both in the sense of new exposures to old agents and new exposures to new agents. The whole issue of... uh, Um, unusual occupational lung diseases and particularly uh, all that's idiopathic is not idiopathic is sort of a mantra that we have in the field and there's certainly a lot that people can do Uh, for those who are so inclined I'm sure there's still work to do on uh, genetics although uh, it's never been something that's called out to me and I think there's an area where some of that work is driven by what you can get funding for, and if there isn't a molecular genetics component in your proposal, it's not going to do well at study section, but I don't think that's a reason to go down that route if, if it doesn't call out to you and, and if you don't think that it actually truly matters um, very much in what's really the driving factor in, in disease or the diseases that you're interested in. I will also say that I think that work disability from respiratory disease, to my view, is a, a, a part of occupational lung disease, and it's a part that has been traditionally understudied and for which there's a huge uh, opportunity for um, for research and research that would inform public policy.
0: Could you expand on that a little bit when you say work disability, um, and how do you distinguish that between, um, uh, between the work that's already been done and, and what, what distinguishes work disability specifically?
1: Uh, Work disability refers to, uh, and here I'm talking about specifically work disability due due to respiratory conditions. So let's assume someone has a respiratory condition which is in no way related to uh, occupation, either uh, made worse by occupation or caused by occupation, but in particular not caused by occupation. What are the factors um, in the workplace which uh, tend to promote people's inability to work or the adaptation of work so that someone can continue to work. Um, now, that can include exacerbation of your condition, but it just can include other factors like flexibility of work hours, being able to have uh, uh, work um, from home and, and a variety of other things. So that whole area of research, which which is close to the topic of uh, quality of life Because quality of life research uh, touches on um, what are a person's valued life activities, and one of the most valued is your ability to be able to work. My colleague here at UCSF, Dr. Patty Katz, really developed that concept of valued life activities, and um, it comes out of um, the um, rheumatologic disease world, but it really is quite applicable to uh, lung disease as well. And those are just a few examples, but there could be many more.
0: Thank you for clarifying that. Um, I also wonder if you could expand a little bit on your thoughts about the difficulty in further studying in the mainstream the issues that veterans face when they return from their service. I think that's a topic that many people... Um, would potentially be interested to hear about and why that's been difficult to, to study?
1: Uh, well, I mean, difficult to study means first you have to ask the question. So have the, have the right questions been asked? And then the difficulty of study, of course, is you're dealing with large populations which are located and um, spread out across the United States. Some ways in which it's it's not so hard to study is that the, uh, to the extent that a veteran gets uh, her or his health care in the veteran system, the medical records are standardized. They're electronic. They're accessible. They're the same across different centers. So there's, there are large, large data mining as possible as well as, I think, commitment from the Veterans Administration uh, to support Research on uh, veterans' outcomes. In terms of thinking about the military as an occupation, I think that's partly related to a a mindset shift, you know, to think about, um, yes, some things which are um, related to and very specific to um, munitions and. Uh, military activities and some things which are uh, just bread and butter, welding and earth moving and um, combustion byproduct exposure. The whole issue of um, combustion byproduct exposure from burn pits is um, really a sort of bread and butter uh, combustion byproduct exposure issue. It's not exotic. It's just the Gases and fumes, basically, um, that would occur in that context. So it's really it's really a mix of things, but it's partly applying epidemiologic techniques and it's partly um, uh, integrating um, approaches. There's great historical precedence for this. The entire apparatus of air pollution health effects research in the United States was really a direct outgrowth of what had been traditional occupational medicine and industrial health research in the 1950s when the first widespread outbreaks of population level air pollution health effects began to be appreciated. The only people who had the technical skills to measure any of these things were industrial hygienists who came right out of uh, the occupational health world. So it would be nice to see the same cross fertilization occur in terms of occupational lung disease and, uh, and uh, military health.
0: So uh, I had just one final question, and I wanted to ask you, if you thought there were significant implications for occupational environmental health with regards to climate change, the biggest thing that came to mind was when you were discussing work disability. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. And
1: well, some of that's pretty multidisciplinary, and uh, the, the, the persons who sometimes are best placed are, the, are the, those that, whose focus has been more on ambient air pollution. Uh, there just tends to be a bit more overlap in that area. So some of our of our um, assembly members, for example, who are more focused in that way, have become leaders in uh, in climate change research. Uh, John Balms recently wrote a pretty darn good uh, review article on that. Um, but there are some other um, levels of expertise that are also important and uh, come from different disciplines. So I think that the persons um, that are with expertise in, uh, in allergy and immunology have gotten quite involved in this because of changing patterns of aeroallergens and perhaps most notably infectious disease specialists, many of whom are public health oriented, but a uh, few of whom are really Directly involved, otherwise in occupational infectious uh, disease, but it, that's certainly an area that's ripe for cross fertilization.
0: Well, Dr. Blanc, did you have any other thoughts you wanted to share um, on this in this interview?
1: Well, I just wanted to thank you for uh, for your engagement and for for making this happen. and uh, um, I hope that uh, there are others who are available. and I, I understand this is the first one in a series, so I'm very honored to be uh, identified for for this uh, trial run. Uh, thanks a lot.
0: Thank you so much for your time and the insights you've provided. I'm sure um, many, many people will find this to be um, helpful with regards to uh, understanding how to develop such an extraordinary career and and with specific uh, eye to the research you do in the field of occupational health.